thank you for being on the podcast. I got, I've got an initial question. I like to go, we're not going to do any fluff stuff. We're going to go serious, deep, powerful, emotional. For the first question, Andrew or Bogue, what should I call you? And is Bogue your last name? Yeah. So Andrew is my first name. Uh, Bogue is my last name. It's my my family name. I've been going by Bogue since I was 14. It started in football and started, you know, kept going with sports and just never stopped. Um, I prefer Bogue, but I always answer to Andrew. A lot of people assume that like, <clears throat> I hate my first name. One of the reasons why I kept it was my graduating class had seven Andrews. And there were only 34 kids in my graduating class. So it was just so much easier to go by Bogue than it was to go by Andrews. And it just, again, it stuck and I've just kept it. <laughs> I used to do track and field. I did a long jump and I, my technique was pretty poor, but I used to like spin my arms. I got the nickname Windmill Phil. So people used to call me Windmill or Mill. And it was like only in that one area. And I was like, yeah, I don't need that to be a thing anymore. It's such a like, non-reference to anything. All right. Okay. So uh, Bogue it is. I find it as a rare thing. I'm, I'm fortunate because I work for an organization that has a few trainers, but I think it's a, like a rare thing to be able to just connect with other trainers. I always enjoy conferences, specifically like things like ACCT, because it's it definitely uh, like people relate. Every time I've gone to like trainer forums or something like that, like I'm talking to people and they're getting what I'm talking about. And it's a very rare thing because the reality is my family don't really know what I do as best as I could try to explain it. And there's so many nuances to training anyway. The first like kind of bigger question is what do you, what do you love about training? Why have you jumped into this career? We don't need to necessarily go back to your history, but like there's, there's something about training that, that you particularly enjoy. I think for me, there's two things. I think the first is I just love sharing what I know with people, whether, whether it's related to ropes course or facilitation or, or you know, our industry um, or not. I just love sharing what I know um, or what I've learned, rather. And I think the other piece is getting to watch somebody who has very little or no experience, like learn something that seems so intimidating either quickly or slowly, but watching them go through that learning process while teaching is something that I really enjoy. I feel like, I don't know if it's for everybody, but for me, I go through seasons of like, am I really a good trainer? Do I really, do I really know how to teach people these things? Are they really getting it? Am I really giving them space to process? You know, all the, all the different pieces. I was particularly going through a season of that last, last training season, last spring. And one of the trainees that I had um, came up to me at the end of the training was like, Bogue, like, I've been trained in the military. I've been trained by the fire department. I've been trained by, you know, this, this, and this. And he's like, this training, the way it's been structured, the way it's, you know, the way we process information, the way you've led us through this, like has been more impactful to me than any of the other trainings I've been a part of. And like, that just like kind of a gut punch of like, oof, like, wow, I have no context for military training or, you know, you know, fire departments or anything like that. But to be affirmed in that way from somebody who's been trained in other areas, like, I wouldn't say that's the reason why I do it, but that's a reason why I continue to do it. Like, okay, I am actually good at this. I actually do know you know, maybe a little bit about what I'm doing. And I think another one, it was years and years and years ago, uh, they, we're on this course called Goliath. It's this massive ropes course, you know, 60 some elements between five levels, four zip lines going off this tower. And this gal, she was one of my trainees, petrified of heights. She didn't feel forced into the training, but like, it was one of those, like you're part of the intern team. So you're going to get trained on this stuff. Um, and she was hesitant the whole week and just watching her grow throughout the whole week, even in that for me was, this is, this is kind of why I like doing this. I, I like seeing people push themselves and grow 
you know, facilitation does that too. And you get to see that with strangers, but here you get to connect for a whole week, not just for one day of programming, like a whole week of training and watch them really grow and stretch themselves and become, you know, a competent facilitator on a ropes course. In all honesty, I'm the sum of the three trainers that have trained me. There are some current trainers in our industry that have helped build me into who I am and have trained me. Um, and I've kind of picked pieces from their trainings and what I thought made them special and great. Um, and I've tried to apply them to my trainings. So I think one of the things is just allowing space for people to make mistakes. Like I would rather somebody make a mistake during a training than in real life. I want them to feel comfortable and like, I don't know this yet. And it's okay for me not to, not to be perfect at it. Obviously when we're testing, right, we want them to be really good at it and be competent. Um, but I also want them to feel like it's okay for them not to be perfect at it. Um, so giving them space to, to make those mistakes. I say this jokingly a lot, especially when tying knots, like when I'm teaching somebody a knot for the first time and they bring it back to me and they're like, Hey, what about this? And it's not, it's not exactly right. So I'll, I'll kind of redo it with them. And I tell them, I do things with people, not for them. So I'll untie it or, re, you know, put it back the way it was and hand it back to them and just allow them to change the thing that I, I need them to change. That piece for me is, I think is one of the things I get complimented on a lot of just letting them make those mistakes. Like I was saying, I think there's a healthy balance between being like hard nosed, follow the rule. Like th- this is our training and like being stern through the whole thing or like just being fun and, and free and, and kind of laughing with them and spending time with them. I jokingly tell my trainees at the beginning of the week, like my mom always told me not to talk to strangers. So let's spend some time getting to know each other. So we spend, you know, a good 45 minutes to an hour at the beginning of every training that I do just getting to know one another, sitting down and having a casual conversation, asking questions. And I, I kind of borrowed that from my outdoor education experience with my students of let's get to know each other, you know, so that we're not strangers and jumping into something scary with people you don't know. Um, and so I think that's another thing. It was just making it fun and making it feel like we're just, we're just a group of people hanging out and doing stuff together. And it, I feel like it, it's a little less stressful that way. You know, I do this at level two trainings and I've been doing it on the podcast about tr- desperately trying to normalize the idea of making mistakes and talking about my own anxieties and all these kind of things that I've done wrong because it wasn't the case when I started in this field. I had so much imposter syndrome, so much concern around like, I don't want to talk about this. Like people wouldn't talk about near misses. And then I would like do something wrong and then be like, am I the only one who's ever done it? And then someone would say, oh no, no, I've done that tons of times. They're like, what? Why didn't you tell me? I was like crying myself to sleep because I like did something wrong. You know, like a lot of trainers that I'm talking to now are all under the same impression because we're having these positive experiences. We're almost learning through the experience of like, you know what? My training was so much better when I let people make mistakes. It was so much better when I spent 45 minutes to an hour just connecting and knowing that I have to build that and build that into a training. And I can't, if a client's saying, Hey, I just want to knew the technical skills. We have to, as trainers, push back and say, no, 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 we need some time to connect with a group. I need to like spend some time with them before I just teach them a knot or teach them how to belay. Our company community, like one of our big things is like, you have to set your ego aside. No, we actually don't know everything. That's one of the things I try to tell my trainees too and reiterate throughout the training is just that, look, I don't know everything. You know, I'm sharing with you what I've learned over the last, you know, umpteen years. But like, if you ask me a question and I genuinely don't know the answer, I'm going to tell you like, hey, I, I actually don't know what the answer to that is. But I'm I'm actually gonna on our break, I'm gonna go call my my three mentors in my industry and my my boss slash friend and be like, hey, this person has this question. It might sound silly and dumb, and I probably should already know this, but you know, what do you guys think about this? And then I get that feedback and then I'm able to share that with them in the moment. And I think that's what makes a really good trainer is the ability to step back and say, you know, my ego is not as important as 
sharing correct information that is going to help protect my trainees. Um, one of the things that I was taught by one of the trainers that trained me was my main goal and responsibility is to make sure that when I leave here, you are competent and you are, I am competent and confident in the idea that you are not going to hurt yourself or somebody else. And if you do, it is going to be a genuine mistake that is something that was unavoidable. And so I try to approach every training that way. And if I'm making stuff up in the moment, if I'm just like, oh, well, you know, why do we tie this? And I was like, I don't know. It's just the good knot that we use. Like, to me, that's a better response than, well, this knot is so much safer than all these other knots. And here's all this data live, blah, blah, blah. And I've just made all of that up. That to me is not helpful. Like we're not giving them our best, right? We're not giving them a genuine, authentic like response. It's just fake and fluff and kind of perpetuates that idea of like, oh, uh, I've, you know, our trainers are perfect and everybody in this industry is perfect. And I have to be that too. If I'm being trained by somebody in the ACCT or what makes a good trainer versus maybe not, not the best trainer would be the separation of ego. Can I remove myself from the equation and really just focus on giving them a quality training, giving them the right, correct information, even if it means having to step back and call somebody else who might have a little bit more experience than me or calling multiple people and then taking that information and sharing with them. I think that ego piece is, is huge in what makes a really good trainer. I've gone to enough conferences and I've seen enough trainings and I've seen enough trainers to know that the range of quality is varied. I think you were probably sitting in one of the conversations around trainer credentialing at the last ACCT. Maybe it was the one that Tom was leading, but it's just, it's just a big old mess. And like the, the reason it's a big old mess is because we cannot move the ego away. The people in the room are just consciously aware of like, well, I think I'm a really great trainer. And so therefore, if you're saying that I should do this, but I'm doing a good job anyway, like, and what I've been trying to advocate for people to do, and like I have to take my own medicine on this as well, is that go into other trainings. Like I recently in the in the spring went to AdventureWorks in Canada and took their level two training. I've been trained by now five different PVMs, and they all vary. And I think that that's good to know that. But just like you said, had I not have done that, I would very much be a high, a product of High Five only because I was a client of High Five before I became a trainer. So my training pathway would have been narrow. And I would have had assumptions for reasons that were non-accurate. What are the critical components of a training that are really positive? They're what you're suggesting, right? Like, are we serving our clients? It's a, it should be client-focused rather than ego-focused of like, it's not about longevity. It's not about checking boxes. I think if we got to a really good point of training credentialing where it was peer-reviewed, then it would make sense to me. But it has to be broadly peer reviewed. It can't be internally peer reviewed. You know, there's a lot of like different factors to it. But I appreciate you mentioning that because I think that sometimes people listening might be like, oh, you know, I have to hit this kind of parameter and everyone, you know, these different things are equal. They're just not. And I think I'm comfortable with our clients if they're not liking the training that I'm providing or a trainer is providing to go elsewhere in the same way that you should have the same opportunity to shop around. I think one of the things that you were saying too is like a, a client, like, as a facilitator, I've worked at a bunch of different camps and a lot of them have different PVMs. A lot of them have different vendors. So I, I had the unique privilege of being able to be trained by, you know, the likes of, you know, Synergo and, and uh, Signature Research and Project Adventure, you know, and, and like a whole handful of others adventure experiences. Like I've been through their trainings as a, as a facilitator and then eventually down the road became a trainer internally for an organization. And then now with challenge quest as a you know travel trainer for you know a third party and i think that's one of the things like that helps me feel like i i can i can do this and i think 
I think one of the biggest barriers to trainers being successful, in my opinion, might be, and even with like the whole like trainer, like credentialing and all of that stuff um, is twofold. One, like you had mentioned, I think the focus in a lot of those trainer credentials of like, it's all about the individual trainer and not about the end user. Like we're, we're, we need proper uh, qualifications as a trainer for the end user, not for ourselves. But then the other thing is, is like, there's this idea that like, oh, there, there are competitors, right? This, this PVM or this non-PVM, you know, just because you're a non-PVM means you don't know as much, but like now we're competitors and we clash and, you know, we don't work with them or we don't, why does it have to be that we're competitors? Why can't it be that we're allies, right? If our end goal is the exact same, if our end goal is the end user and a quality experience and the overall safety of their clients, why, why are we not allies? Why, why are we competitors? Why are we clashing? Why do we not, why do we bogart information or quality training or quality skills or these kinds of things? And so one of the things I love about this podcast is that like you're bringing on people from all different walks of our industry and everybody's kind of sharing a lot of the similar same stuff. And you just have a few other people in the industry that are just really ego heavy that are like, no, we're, we're better than everybody else. Like, no, we're all here kind of for the same reasons and for the same purpose. We're allies. We need to work together. And so that's one of the things that I strive to do is like, I really want to be trained by even more trainers and go sit in some other trainings. And the idea that, oh, well, we can't share with him how we train. Why? Why not? If you're doing something really, really well over here and I have a chance to learn and, and borrow from that and make my trainings just as successful as yours. And then maybe I do something in mind that you could also work on. Like, why are we not working together to make the best training possible regardless of the vendor? Um, I think that's, I think that's one of the biggest barriers to like the actual credentialing of trainers. I'm just going to mention to the listeners out there, like practicing what we preach on this thing. If folks want my training agendas for any of my trainings, let me know. Level one, level twos, I'll, I'll send them. So if you want to email me, I always stick my emails in the thing. I'm happy to send that stuff. Bogle will do the same. And that way you get two opportunities to look at some comparison. I remember when I was a new practitioner, I used to do all my in-house training at the Y. I used to work out before I ever like had any PVM training or anything like that. I remember coming to my first conferences in the industry and being really kind of taken back by the um, the siloing and the that, that kind of feel to it. Like I wasn't invited into a party. Because I felt that way, I've always tried to not do that when I come to conference and stuff. And I don't always hit the mark. I'll, I'll, I'll own that. So I think it is important that we try to like share across, like talk to different people. I've met some incredible people from different vendors. Hey friends. So quick pause in this episode to let you know that we have High Five's annual symposium is coming up on April 13th. And there is a now an open call for workshop proposals. So you can submit all the way up to February 9th. So the deadline to submit your workshop proposal is February 9th. I'm going to stick in the description a link where you can submit your workshop. I encourage people to do it. Please submit a workshop. And no matter what you believe your expertise level to be, you have something to contribute. So submit, and we'll then let you know if you have been accepted. I hope to see you there. Let's keep going in this kind of, this vein, if we can. Something I've been really enjoying is talking to people who've been doing this for a while, and Ask them, what is something that you were taught maybe when you first started, or it could be even like recent that you like really disagree with? That's a really good question. 
So back in the day, cutaway rescues. Okay, those those used to be like the primary, like main, like end all be all, like top tier rescue. Like everybody got trained on cutaways. And I feel like everybody had just a slightly different way of training a cutaway, different, you know, tools and techniques and stuff like that. And then somewhere along the lines over the last like 10 years or so, vendors, PVMs alike have all started to move away from those and like spout this idea that cutaway rescues are dangerous and they're not worth it or you know, there's so many other better ways to do it. And I genuinely disagree with that. To me, it's it's kind of similar to the idea of if I can drive a manual car, I can drive an automatic, right? If I can use a, a two-blade device, I can use a Grigri. I wouldn't train somebody to immediately use a Grigri or an IDIDS or any other type of a sender-to-sender device with mechanical advantage without doing it at the most basic, purest form, right? So single rope technique using rope ladders and all, you know, rope branches and all the crazy things. Like if you can't do it with Pressix, you got no business doing it with all those kinds of things. And so for me, a cutaway rescue is kind of the same thing. It's the most basic form of rescue with the least amount of tools possible that you can still perform a rescue. You just have to do it right. If you take your time and you do it the right way, there is nothing faster than a cutaway rescue because the more pieces you add to the pie, the longer it's going to take. And I know there's like also this debate about like compartmental syndrome and, you know, the hypoxic thing of like the blood rushing back to people's hearts and all of that stuff. Like, is it real? Is it not real? I think it's irrelevant. That shouldn't be our main focus anyways. It should be somebody's in distress. We need to get them down and get them safe. One, I think cutaway rescues are fun. There is that element of danger, right? If you do make a mistake, it, it, it can go pretty bad. But if you were doing things correctly, if you're trained correctly, and if you take your time and do it right, there's nothing wrong with it. It's the most basic form of rescue with the least amount of equipment possible. And I think that's having multiple tools in your bag only makes you better at whatever you're doing. And so I, that, I, I really disagree with that. I 100% agree with you. This is probably one of the first times in a long time that someone said something in the podcast where in my head, I'm like applauding and screaming joy because I 100% agree with you. Our philosophy at High Five is we teach, we choose technique over technology. That's a philosophy that we hold. So because we work with nonprofits and people who have lower budgets who can't afford like a Petzl Jag or something like that, we need to teach them how to use the tools they already have, carabiners, ropes, and literally all they need is a little bit of tech cord or spectra, and then they need uh, some shears. And if they have those things, they can do all the things that we're able to do with that limited amount of technology. And I agree, if they get the technique down, then you know, on average for us, we're looking at if I if I was doing 30 feet of a climb, I can get someone up, I can go up, cut, bring them down in under 10. From an efficiency perspective, I 100% agree with what you're saying and technique over technology every day, all day. And I agree on the ATC, tubular device, Grigri debate. Like you listened to the episode where we talked about that very thing, right? Like I think that that's, I think it's an essential. And I think that what has happened in the industry is there's this desire around trying to make a level two accessible for everyone. I do personally think that, and I do. We do this in our certification for level two. We don't pass everyone. I, I, I think that there has to be a cut that when we're dealing with a high intensity situation where stress is high, that I think that it's important that the people who are able to do it are those people who are able to have the techniques and not relying on this piece of tech to do their work for them. That they need to be technically strong. So. We hold our level two standard pretty high when it comes to technique. And I think that that's paid off for our clients. But anyway, you had another thing. 
over at Challenge Quest, we also do cutaways. Uh, we, we teach cutaways pretty religiously. And I like that, that technique over technology. I'm a gear guru. Like I, I love gear. Like I nerd out over gear all day long. I'll spend my most of my free time at the conference at the booth playing with all the new stuff. And um, I like to you know be sent demo units of things and, and try out all the cool stuff. But Again, it goes back to the basics. If you don't know the like, if you don't know the basics, if you got no business touching all this fancy stuff, and then like you, we serve a lot of Midwest clients that, I mean, they have the money they have from their donors or from their camps. They're not very big. They don't have tons of money. Like you said, they they've only got what they've got. Uh, they can't afford a, a Petzl Jag or a, like an IDS or a rig and all that stuff. The other one, and this might be a controversial take. So hot take here: I hate butt belays. I absolutely hate butt belays. <laughs> Almost contradicts what I said about like the most basic form, right? Because like it's the simplest and easiest thing to do. But like if you're if you're butt belaying, and let's just say the worst happens, right? If if you're thinking in the in the context of worst case scenario, that butt belayer passes out or you know has an allergic reaction to a bee sting or something, and they let go, like their system's gone. Like that person's coming to the ground, you know, unless there's you know multiple backups and all this other stuff, and they may the backups may or may not be competent. I would rather strap on an ATC or some other, you know, stitch plate, you know, old school, right. Or, uh, some other, you know, tube slotted belay device, uh, to the front, you know, a rescue aid or figure eight or, you know, what a weed or whatever you guys want to use. I'm just not a huge fan of butt belays. I would say your hot take is a, uh, is the coldest hot take I've heard in a while. <laughs> Fair enough. I was expecting something very controversial, but yeah, the butt belay, I, I agree. What I would say is that I, I tend to find that people who have had, haven't had training in. 15, 20 years, or the person that trained them hasn't had training in 15, 20 years, I might see that. I also might see the butt belay used as the backup belayer's technique. So you've got the primary belay in a P-bus belay technique, and then the backup is doing a butt belay. And I also think that that's completely non-necessary. The notion of a tubular device is if you stick your hand straight down and push downwards, that will put it into a break. You don't need to do the butt, but I think the butt comes from the historical perspective of seeing people in the butt belay. I actually have a story. There was a student, I think it's a problem if anyone out there is still teaching it. Uh, that would be my hot take. If if you're teaching the butt belay to anyone, I would remove that from the training because what I think that does is it teaches people enough to to hurt people. The story that I heard was this was a college student who came to us and their professor was still teaching it because they thought like these are a cool skill. And in mountaineering, it actually serves a purpose if you're you know, if you're belaying from the top and you're sitting in your, and you're sitting in a, a wedge of snow, like there's a lot of mechanic areas where a butt belay might be essential in a rescue scenario even, but they were teaching it. And so then students went out climbing, rock climbing, and they thought, oh, I'm going to use a butt belay. They were wearing nylon shorts and rope is nylon, right? And, and people might know that rope can cut through rope, enough friction nylon will burn through nylon. And they had grafted their nylon shorts into their leg in the upper thigh. They did the right thing. They maintained control of the rope, which was really cool because the amount of pain they must have experienced And so, so much so that they still had a scar. They showed me the scar. They have the scar and some remnants of the nylon still in their skin, like deep within the scar tissue. In the historical context is that people actually used to have belay chaps, this like leather skirt that they would wear when doing a butt belay. And th that was their tool. It was like using gloves or whatever. But if you're doing it with non, none of that other stuff, I a hundred percent agree with you. Like there's not considerations of what happens if, you know, there's no fail safe, no backup to it. And when it comes to rescues, I think you have, you have to be thinking all the time about worst case scenario. If you train to worst case scenario, 
hopefully that facilitator can then perform in every scenario that's better than that or less likely to cause injury than that. Um, if they if they know what to do during worst case scenario, and I think a butt belay during worst case scenario, that facilitator's out unconscious, they let go, that rope goes down, and they're gone. You know, they 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 have potential of causing severe injury or death to a client, and I'm just not a huge fan. I will say too, jumping real quick because it popped in my head, so I apologize. Going back to the cutaways, I've been in some trainings where the trainers, you know, as a, as a client and as a trainer, where the previous trainer didn't have the trainee actually do a cutaway. They didn't actually pull the knife out or pull the the shears out and cut. And for me, I think that's just extremely dangerous. I think if you're going to teach a cutaway rescue, the first time you are cutting a rope cannot be in real life. It cannot be during an immediate rescue scenario. It has to be during training. And so if you are teaching cutaways, this is my, again, my personal opinion, you have to have them cut the rope which means you have, you have to have, it, it, it takes a little bit more because you have to have some extra you know, material, some older dead rope or some slightly on the end of their lifespan rope. I try to always have, so the night, so usually how we structure our cutaways is we'll practice all day long. We'll spend the entirety of the day mocking it. So we'll keep the knife in the sheath and, you know, we'll talk about, you know, pretending to cut and then we'll use an A-tree to let them stand back up and remove the system and all that. So that we're, they're not actually cutting while they're learning these skills. The night before the test, I have them cut on like a, just a piece of rope that two staff are holding together so they can see how easy, because we use the, the Gerber gut hooks. We really like those. They protect your knuckles really well. They're, you know, if with the right amount of tension and a clean blade, it'll slice through like hot butter. I'm not a huge fan of the shears because if they're not a high quality shear, they're not going to cut through the rope efficiently. You're going to have to sit there and scissor for a few times and they really try to cut each strand um, unless you have really high end uh, trauma shears, which are expensive. And then during the test, they're actually cutting. So they're getting to feel the weight of that participant drop in the system if they don't have their pressing set right. Are they still going to be secure? Yes. You know, we're still going to be able to get them to the ground. Yes. But that's, you know, we, we really emphasize protecting our own equipment, cutting the old system away, and then bringing them to the ground securely. And I really think that those people who are training, they need, they need that cutaway. They need to be able to actually do that and feel what it feels like to cut somebody free of the system. If you're going to have them practice something, they've got to practice something. There is a reality for us. We- I want people to also the normalizing mistaking making like I, I'll let them cut even if something was to go not catastrophically wrong, but like now they're stuck and there's two people stuck on the stuck on something. And I'm like, okay, now lower. And guess what? They can't lower. Like I want all of those kind of m- moments to happen, as you said, in the process, because I think that those are important. I think that that not only the physical sensation, but the emotional response to making an error, I think is really important. You know, there has been moments where, you know, I've let people come all the way to the ground and then I've gone over to them and then I've, all of the carabiners are unlocked. And I want them to like, have this moment of like, oh crap, like I didn't check my system. Like that's a real critical error. Like you've made a mistake there. I knew in the moment, nothing's going to happen. Everything's weighted. So, but I want them to be very clear. Like I want them to have that feeling of like, oh, that really, that doesn't make me feel great. But all of those things, I, I think it's okay. It's okay for us to have that because what we've done is created a system and an environment where they're not maligned for it. I don't make fun of them. I'm not laughing at them. You know, it's like, but I want them to experience it physically, emotionally, what it feels like. And I think that, that that's an important thing because I don't want them to go away after a training. And if they ever get into a situation where they need to use it, I've never experienced X, Y, and Z. I think that's, I think that's a mistake. I, I think too, with specifically talking about the cutaways, you can probably apply this to other rescue types or other, you know, 
scenarios. So like with our cutaway, you know, they're stepping onto an atria, holding onto their system and stepping off this tower. If they forget their atria or they fall out of the atria, you know, rope ladder, they'll fall out of it and be like, what do I do now? And it's like, what do you do now? Like if this was a real life scenario, what are you going to do? Right. Or if I, you know, throw my bag off the tower for my belay team on the ground and my knife still attached there, my cutting tool is still attached to the bag. Like, how do I get that back? And I step off the tower and I realize I don't have my cutting tool. What are you going to do? Just because they didn't follow the exact steps to like the T doesn't mean that the rest of you still can't be performed. It, for me, I think if it forces them to have to think outside the box or continue the thing, I tell them all the time, it's kind of like lifeguarding, right? One of the things we teach in lifeguarding as a lifeguard trainer is the only way you fail is if you stop trying. Like if you, if you give up on trying to, to rescue, now, if you're putting yourself in an unsafe scenario, right? Obviously, you know, rule number one of rescue is don't become the victim. But if you stop trying, that's when you fail. If you continue to try to rescue the person and give everything you have and think of every scenario, every option possible to rescue the person, that's what I'm looking for. I want to see that you're going to think of everything you can possibly do outside the box, inside the box, whatever, to make sure that you can perform the rescue and get this participant down safely. Going with that failure thing, I, I completely agree. There was someone in a training, and I, I promise I did not give them the, this nickname, which everyone now is thinking like, Phil, you definitely gave him the nickname. He ended up getting the nickname Timmy Two Drops because he dropped something twice and his name was Tim. And I, Yeah, but even Timmy Two Drops passed, right? Because I agree with what you said. Like, it's, oh, you made a mistake, right? Get out of it. Like, how do you solve the problem? If ultimately the goal is and the rescue is to safely bring the person down to the ground, you can make mistakes along the way. Yeah, I've dropped something. Well, is there a way that you can get it back up to you? Is there a rope on the ground that maybe you could pull up? Or, you know, like the lots of different factors that can help you. But yeah, I, I think sometimes people have this like, I made a mistake, therefore I didn't hit it X, Y, and Z perfectly as I was taught, therefore it's a failure. Like, not the case. There are critical components that lead to a failure, of course. But if you're able to keep persevering through something, that's a great thing. I, I really appreciate when people are able to try to problem solve. I had a someone once get stuck because their prosec was caught in a rescue up top. When they went to lower, like they got hung up, they were able to muscle themselves up their own rope whilst keeping a brake on, grab hold of the cable, pull themselves up, unweight their system. Now, no one else, I couldn't do that, but like, I, I said to him, like, wow, that you did it, right? I, I'm not I can't I can't fail someone for actually accomplishing the task. What they've experienced though is a real good moment of like, I don't want that to happen again. That's definitely not the process that's gonna be the most efficient. They'll hopefully never make that mistake again. One of the one of the things that I do in all of my trainings with cutaways too is is the the knife. Because I always keep my knife on the outside of my bag. And I tell trainees all the time, grab your knife, clip it to yourself first, your whatever your cutting tool is, clip it to yourself first, and then set up your system. That way you always have it. Because we usually would never go to happen. So if you set up your system first, kick your bag off the tower or whatever, your cutting tool went down with the bag. Um, I tell them, like, you're going to have to get that rope and pull that bag all the way back up. And some people are like, oh, that's really mean. That's hazing. It's like, no, like if there was nobody else down there and they were doing a self-belay, like they're going to have to do that anyways to get to their knife. And by pulling, you know, that 110, 200 foot rope all the way to the end and getting that bag and getting that knife, it hopefully helps remind them like, hey, I need to grab my knife first or make sure that I have, I've cleared my bag and the only thing in there is rope. And, you know, like I said, people tell me all the time, bug, that's hazing. That's so mean. It's like, I've actually done that in a training while I was showing trainees what to do. I threw my bag off of a tower with a knife on it and was like, this is what you do. And I pulled the whole rope back up and was like, I, I fell victim to my own, <laughs> my own hazing, my own, my own consequence to my action. But like, again, if you, if you stop trying, that's, that's really when you end up failing. And I too, I had somebody in a training 
this last year, they muscled up and we're, we're able, like, cause I tell them all the time, like, you know, with a rescue eight, you know, the friction and then that device, like it's gonna be really difficult to pull yourself back up. I can't do it. You know, using even an HVA, like it's still very difficult, you know, cause the, the, the cable is just going to flex and bounce with you. And, you know, I watched this kid just muscle himself up. The blade team pulled all the slack out and I was like, oh my gosh, more power to, you know, you didn't stop. You kept doing it and you found a way to, to make the rescue work. And, uh, what's interesting is, and then, you know, this might be a controversial thing too, is, you know, we do ADA universal access trainings. We actually do cutaways and teach cutaways with universal access equipment. And, and some people are like, that seems sketchy, but it's like, it's, it's honestly the same thing. It doesn't, you don't have to change anything about your procedure. You don't have to come up again. You have to buy new equipment. You have what you have and you can still perform a rescue with everything, every tool that you're going to be using to normally facilitate that day. One last thing. I want to keep going on this, like practicing what we're preaching, normalizing mistakes. I thought about this. This is, this could be another episode later down the line with our training team, but have you ever received some bad feedback? Have you ever made a mistake in a training that you'd be willing to share that I think would normalize like the trainers also don't know everything moment? Something that you've done that was a mistake? First of all, absolutely. I guarantee you that there, there are probably more than one training where I've done something that I've made a mistake in. Not necessarily ropes course related, but maybe more lifeguard related. You know, there, there was a, a section of, of our training that we had to perform certain a certain type of skill. And I completely forgot that that skill was even something that was needed for that module. And it wasn't until testing that it was like, oh crap, like they're supposed to test on this today and they haven't even learned it yet. And so I just went to them like, guys, I apologize. We still have to get back in the pool. We've got another thing to do because I completely forgot that this was even in here. I think early on as well, something that popped in my head was I definitely had an ego. I definitely was like, you know, when I first became a trainer, I was like, you know, this is it. I've, I've made it. You know, I know all the things that I know. I'm Bogue's top dog. You know, I, I've got this, you know, my company trusts me to go out and train these people and, and belay school where we like teach the different types of belays, you know, like how to set like the different types of belaying. So like, you know, the difference between a dynamic and a static belay or a traversing, you know, in a, a stationary belay. And when I was teaching it for like the first few times, I was making everything up. Almost nothing I was saying was probably factually true. And I got called out in the training from somebody who's like, Hey, that's actually not what this is. It's this, this, and this. And I was like, yeah, okay, well, I'm the trainer. This is what I'm telling you. It is. It felt gross, even in the moment, like making something up and just being, and trying to stick to it. But I didn't want to lose that. Like, you know, I'm the trainer. I know what I'm talking about. I was so afraid of that. Like, I don't know what they call that. I, I really wanted them to see me as somebody who was competent and confident in what I was doing. And so I, I, I risked them giving, being given incorrect information and potentially setting something up incorrectly and causing potentially even harm to a client um, just because I wanted to make sure that I looked good in front of the client. And that, that was, that was a humbling experience to then, you know, they, you know, they called our boss and boss came to me. I was like, Bo, you know, this is what they said. This is what they said that you did. And, you know, and I was like, yeah, no, that was, that was right. And I had to go back and, and totally apologize for all of those things. And, and that's, that was one of the big pushes for me to be like, you know what, I guys in our training, we're probably going to come across something I don't actually know. And that's okay. If you have a question, I don't have an answer to my answer is not going to be no. My answer is going to be, let's, let's find out together on our break. I'm going to call somebody, you know, make a, make a phone call, make a text, you know, send an email. And I'm going to try to find the answer to that question for you rather than try to make something up on the spot. I used to be really bad about that. They see it. I think if it's that same notion with like, personally having worked with middle schoolers mostly, cause that's my jam. Like they see right through the crap. Like your trainees are going to see right through the crap. If you're, if you're egotistical and making stuff up, they're going to know they're, they're going to be sussy the whole time. 
they, you know, they're going to have a really hard time trusting anything you're saying if it's all about your ego. Um, and then you make the whole training about, oh, well, this is, I have this experience and I'm good at these things. And this is why this training is so good is because I've done this, 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 and this. And I do all of these, you know, if you pump yourself up to make yourself look better in front of everybody, they're going to, they're going to see right through, right through the BS. Yeah, I'm definitely, I've mentioned this. I think there was an episode on ego where I talked about this very thing, like as recent as maybe even a couple of years ago, someone called me out on just giving too much information. And I realized like the reason I was doing it was because I knew it. Yeah. You early on, you make stuff up because you don't know it. And then you learn the stuff and then you want to provide that all the time. Like, look how much I know. Because then it's another justification of like, I have experience. I know what I'm talking about. And then you get to a point where you're like, I don't need to teach any of that stuff. It's cool that I know if someone asked the question, I could answer it, but I don't need to overwhelm new people with all of the stuff that they don't need to know. At level one training, if you're going deep into killer Newtons, scrap that out of your agenda. Because I think, I think that there is like, there's stamps on carabiners that are important, but not for a level one. <laughs> Who is it serving? Once again, when we go back to the start, right? Client focused instead of my own ego. Uh, one thing I wanted to say on it is our organization, our community of leaders, like the one of the things that we really harp on is knowing why you do what you do. And I was taught that even by other vendors and other trainers, which, you know, when a trainer came out and said, you know, it's important to know why you're doing what you're doing and not just because I said so. That to me is like, okay, cool. I, I think that trainer's got something figured out and I really should be paying attention to what they're doing. If you're listening, don't use that as <laughs> a way to make yourself look good. You know, like the the genuineness of like, you got to know why you're doing what you're doing. Like you got to know why you're using that carabiner. Like you're saying like, you're not just, you know, picking the Amazon special, you know, you got a 25 pack on Amazon for 15 bucks and they're going to break as soon as you put anything on them. But yeah, if, if you're, like you said, if you're using anything in our industry that meets all the standards or, you know, or qualifications it's supposed to, your body's going to break long before the equipment does. Like that, that stuff is so overbuilt and so over redundant. I think there's a fine line between what they need to know and what they don't. And I think, like you said, get rid of the fluff, get rid of the stuff that the everyday facilitator doesn't need to know. I think it'll help streamline the training. That time management thing, you won't spend as much time on things that are unnecessary to talk about. And I feel like that could be a whole other topic, whole other conversation of what should we actually be talking about in level one trainings, uh, which I know is the overarching conversation of qualifying trainers. But Hopefully as well for you listening, this has been helpful. I'm going to stick all of Bogue's contact information and stuff about Challenge Quest in the in the description. So check them out. I encourage uh, the connections to continue. Thank you so much, Bogue. Am I, am I allowed to make a shameless plug? So uh, the ACE conference this year is in Oklahoma City. And as somebody who has only ever just attended, I actually get the privilege of presenting this year to a friend of mine over at Project Adventure. We're facilitating a, a session called Would That Fail? WTF. And the whole premise is just to look at you know some of the stuff that inspectors find on their training routes or inspection routes rather. And it's hopefully going to be a fun time. Um, so if you're not signed up for the ACC conference and you're interested, there's plenty of ways to to get involved and to make your uh, your attendance super cheap to the ACD conference is also Oklahoma City. So, it, I mean, anybody wants to have a conversation, come hit me up at the conference. Um, if anybody wants to, you know, spend a few extra days after the conference and come visit us in Tulsa and come see our zip tour or just hang out and have some coffee and talk about trainings, talk about gear, talk about whatever, you know, whatever the links and the socials and stuff that, that Phil's going to put in there, just hit me up. Awesome. I'll be there too. I shall be doing a live podcast recording at that conference. So Heck yeah. be sure to be there. Thanks so much, Bogue. Thanks, Phil. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Vertical Playcast. And then what about thanks for listening to High Fives Podcast? Can you do it? Okay, try. Thanks for giving. I think I'll pass the guy. <laughs>